This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 200 of the Dressage Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you by Finline Global. Lindsay McCall from Jupiter, Florida. And this is Ellie Brimmer from Wellington, Florida, currently, soon to go back to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And you're listening to the Dressage Radio Show, brought to you this week by the United States Paraquestrian Association. And we also have our producer, Glenn, with us. Well, hi, guys, and welcome to your first time co-hosting the Dressage Radio Show. Thanks, Thank Glenn. you. As we mentioned uh, last week and a couple weeks ago, we, we are going to once a month have the United States Paraquestrian Association host the show. And I'm very excited about this because, uh, I, you know, as Lindsay knows, I'm a big supporter and always have been of the Para Association and the Para Riders. So I think this is just a, an opportunity for you guys to get the word out uh, to everybody about what you do and how exciting it is. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I know Ellie and I are very are super excited to uh, be here, and I guess Reese and Philip, uh, we want to thank them for handing us the reins once a month and to, to do this. <laughs> well, that's good. Just don't drop them. Um, <laughs> to introduce yourselves, Lindsay, tell me a little bit about you. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I'm sure as we move forward, uh, everyone will get to know a little bit more about me and my life, uh, but... I guess as for a brief history, I'm originally from Ohio, and I come from a family of equestrians. We have eight horses up north right now, and uh, my whole life I've competed on the hunter-jumper circuit, and I've also dabbled in dressage, and uh, my family is very involved in multiple disciplines, including dressage, and my mom even has a pony that she does combined driving with. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so... And I, my husband and I, in our two labs, we just moved to Jupiter, Florida to be here full time. And I'm excited to get started and hopefully move some horses here as well soon. <laughs> and you help the, you help the USPEA how? Yeah, sure. So I guess my career is I'm the PR manager for the United States Para Equestrian Association. And I've been with them since about 2009, approximately. I guess we could say 2010. And uh, I've been promoting and doing photojournalism for them, and I get this amazing opportunity that I get to travel with the team, and I get to know the riders better. I get to hang out with some of the best riders in the, in the world, <laughs> and I've really enjoyed having this opportunity and being a part of this discipline. So I guess that's kind of what I've been doing on a, on a weekly basis. <laughs> Terrific. Now, Ellie, I, you are a para-rider, and from what I hear, yeah, a, a serious troublemaker. A, so tell us yeah. a little about yourself. <laughs> I'm a grade three rider. Um, I'm originally from um, Wyzetta, Minnesota, but I just moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan to keep working with my, uh, my trainer, Roz Kinsler. Um, I come from a family of hunter-jumper riders. My mom's a jumper rider. I'm a fifth-generation fox hunter. Um, and I just started doing dressage um, in 2009. I was long-listed for the London Paralympics. And with that same mount, I've been trying for the World Equestrian Games in Normandy, France. Terrific. Very good. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Thank you. Now, you're in Wellington. Obviously, you've been down there for the show season. Yep. Have you competed able-bodied uh -huh. as well? 
I have. Um, I'm trying to work on getting my bronze medal. I already have my first level scores. My paraquestrian test is equivalent to second level scores, but I've been doing the able-bodied second level tests as well, and I have one of the two scores that I need for my bronze for second level. And so that's a continuing goal for me, and I'm hoping to um, finish up that second 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 level score this summer and then hopefully move on to some of the third level things as well. Yay, well, so good we'll for see. you. Yeah. Terrific. Well, I'm going to let you guys take over the show at this point. I know you have some news uh, of the big show that just happened in Wellington, and you have a bunch of guests. Tell everybody who's coming up. Sure. Um, we have Tina Wentz coming up uh, on the show today, and Tina's going to talk about a few items, such as young riders, and she's also going to talk a little bit about Jonathan Wentz, her son, who is a 2012 Paralympian. And we also have Derek Perkins, who is a brand-new paradressage rider, and he's also a disabled veteran. So he has some unique stories as well to tell. So we had an amazing week at the Global Dressage Festival, uh, Three Star in Wellington. And we our U.S. team did not win. Canada kind of took over the team lead. But we had an amazing show, some great new riders, and... I know Ellie was one of those team riders. I'd like Ellie to tell us a little bit about how the show went for her. Um, well, it was, you know, it was one of those situations where I guess if you can't be good, be interesting. Um, my horse was a little fresh the first day and a little spooky, um, but we we came back from that well the second day, and our highlight really was the the freestyle on the final day. We ended up with a 64%, and it was a... It was new choreography for me because the grade threes have just moved into the 20 by 60 meter arena. In previous years, we've been the 20 by 40, and I have a rather large horse. I'm only five foot, and he's um, he's 16 three hands. And so it was really nice for me to have him in that large space. We, we both really appreciated it. Um, and it was, it was really interesting to ride the new tests and um, – there was lots of good feedback from the judges, so we know where to go now in these upcoming competitions and how to prepare. And tell us about how kind of the, the team did for, for you guys. You were a member of the team this year. Yeah. Well, the team competition was entering, interesting for us. Unfortunately, you know, it was a small group of American riders. We're kind of in a rebuilding phase right now after London. A lot of um, people are in the process of getting new horses and new combinations coming out. So it's very, it's an interesting time to be involved in para. And um, it was a lot of developing riders. Um, Mary Jordan was kind of our, our anchor rider, if you will. She was on um, the short list for London and she was the grade four on our team. And then Lorita Oakleaf, who's a one B who has a, um, a lovely Frisian stallion was also on our team, and I was on our team as the sole grade three rider, which is traditionally kind of regarded as um, the most challenging grade because it's right in between the lower levels of the walk trot um, divisions of the 1A, 1A, 1B, and 2 and then the higher grade of grade four, which is very close to able-bodied work. And that was an amazing facility out there. I know this was my first year at Global, and I was very impressed not only with Lloyd Lloyd Landheimer with the show management, but that facility. What did you think of showing under the um, covered arena? 
I love the covered arena. You know, it was a really great facility, and I felt like we. It was nice to be out of. You know, I know all the um, people up north are going to hate me, but I'm going to say it. It was nice to be out of the sun um, while we were competing <laughs> and not getting so hot. Um, and it was really fun. I love. Uh, I love going over to um, to Global because. Um, my land cameras team is all from my area where I grew up in Minnesota, so I know everybody in the office really well, and it's um, it's a very friendly atmosphere, and the facility is um, really top notch. So we were very happy to be there this year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was kind of amazing, and it was fun. We were all right next to uh, the some of the potential Olympic riders as well, so that was fun. Just just being right alongside them. We also had our first show with our new USEF discipline director, Lorene Johnson, and I know she's probably embarrassed if when she hears that this that I'm mentioning her name, but I was really excited. She was so involved with our team and just just there with us. And I, I know as a rider for for you, she's it's great to have somebody there for you for us. Yeah, Lorene was um, fabulous. It was her first time. Um, you know, she was. Uh, she was an assistant in the office for a while, and it was her first time with us at a horse show. And it was just, um, it was so great to have her as a liaison on the grounds. And she was really good at getting any questions about finding out the information we needed. And uh, I really look forward to working with her in the future. And I know um, she's going to help us bring her equestrian more to the forefront in the United States Equestrian Federation. Coming up next, we'd like to welcome our first guest, Tina Wentz. She is from Richardson, Texas, and she is the mother of Jonathan Wentz, who was um, on our Paralympic team in 2012 and sadly passed away shortly after the game. She's still involved in paradressage and is currently, um, she's a national classifier, which means she helps evaluate um, which grade they'll be placed in. She's going to talk to us about the development of um, young rider paradressage and specifically um, the scholarship fund in honor of her son, Jonathan Wentz. Hey, Tina, how are you doing? Great. Great. Um, beautiful Texas. Well, I know I'm leaving the, the South soon, and I'm very sad about it. Um, but we'd like to talk to you today about your involvement with the young rider group in paradressage. Um as we all know, um, Jonathan was very active as a young rider in the paraquestrian um, position, and we wanted to know if you have any current updates on that and on the scholarship fund and how you think the young rider group in para is developing. Well, I was just in Florida at the uh, first uh, para three-star of the year in the U.S., and it was exciting that we had some new young paras being classified and coming to watch the competition, and that was extremely exciting. Um, as you said, it was one of Jonathan's goals was to establish and grow a young riders program. Um, mm -hmm. He was the only young rider there was when he started, and then uh, only one more, Sidney Collier, joined the, the crew. And... Um, yep. He and Sydney both did a demonstration at the North American Young Riders Championship and talked to anyone mm -hmm. that would listen about trying to include a para division in that. And I think we're still yeah. trying to uh, work towards that. Yeah, that would that would be really great. I uh, 
I volunteered at Young Riders last year as an e-scribe, and to have that participation in such a large venue would really be fabulous. Um, it it really so, would, and give the riders an opportunity to be around not only other Young Rider paras, but Young Rider able-bodied um, riders to give them that yes, view and to see the enthusiasm and the work put out. Absolutely. I, I was really happy when I was there last year to see um, Madison Lawson, who's a grade four rider from Canada, um, cross over and do the able-bodied young riders. It was really encouraging to see. Yeah. Um, and and it's, as far as Jonathan's uh, scholarship fund, I'm very excited that we've been able to carry on his dream and his mission uh, by establishing that and it will be funds that we raise that will go towards uh, United States young riders ages 16 to 25 uh, because it will go towards trying to offset part of their expense as they pursue international competition. So it will help. Yeah, it will help provide funds for them for uh, participating in uh, three-star uh, or above um, para-CDIs. And also, as it, as it comes about, looking towards the future, it would, it would go towards helping them um, if they qualified and participated in uh, a Young Riders Championship. Wonderful. That's great. Um, I know we're all, um, all of us riders, we're very excited to see that fund established, and I, I hope it continues well into the future. The other, I guess, exciting thing, it's not for young riders exclusively, but hopefully there will be another young rider. We've uh, been able to establish a uh, Jonathan Wentz Memorial Trophy, and that will be awarded to a top international para-equestrian. Again, we're looking towards the future, and right now we only have para-dressage at the Paralympic level, but we have para-driving and um, para-dressage in world championships. And um, mm-hmm. we get jumping, raining, um, vaulting. <laughs> so vault established, and as those become established and as they excel at the international level, they will be included to um, possibly uh, be awarded this this award. Tina, you played a lot of roles as a groom, as a mom with Jonathan. I guess, can you kind of tell me a little bit more about him as a young rider and then going into the Paralympics and what that was like for you as a mom, a groom, and, of course, um, one of the main sponsors of John? <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, it, it was an unbelievable uh, experience and, um, you know, of course, extremely exciting. I first put him on the horse at the age of 18 months, never dreaming that that would lead to uh, the London Paralympics. But I knew that uh, he would benefit from um, the horse and what it could give him as far as physical therapy and then as when he turned five for sports riding. And, um, you know, to be quite honest, I was a recreational rider and more the Western uh, discipline, and I kept trying to push him towards Western, but uh, when he was (laughs) 
when he was 10, <laughs> the opportunity to ride with in uh, quadrille and pas de deux, some former uh, Paralympic dressage riders. And he found out about that and said, that's what I'm doing. And in 13, at age 13, he set the goal to um, compete at the 2012 London Paralympics. And at the time, I thought, oh, man, okay, we'll try, we'll see. Uh, but he was determined and uh, set his mind to that and through many ups and downs, um, persevered and, um, and made it. So it was just an unbelievable, uh, wonderful opportunity that he was able to achieve that um, dream at the age of 21. I loved being a part of that as well, and I just every time I'd interview him behind the scenes after every class, it was so rewarding to see his goals come true. And I remember he got off that course at um, the Paralympics in London, and I'm out there. I'm he's coming through the tunnel, and we start interviewing, and I start talking to him, and he says I, I he was so excited that he completed his goal, and he was just so elated by how well him and Richter did. So he was <laughs> it was very rewarding for me to see that and to see this this young rider grow and do so well internationally and might I say he did get the highest percentage score of all United States uh Olympian and Paralympians as an equestrian. So that's kinda cool too. <laughs> it was. He was very proud of that. He would have loved to have brought home a medal but he was very yeah. proud of the fact that he was the highest uh, placing U.S. equestrian. And also mm -hmm. he was excited because he knew that his great horse, Richter Scale, and he had given their all and given 110%, and uh, you can't do more than that. Yeah, he and no. Richter had, had such a wonderful partnership, and it really was, um, as another rider, fabulous to watch. Um, and I know you guys went through a lot of challenges finding the right horse for Jonathan because he was such a big guy in addition to being a para-rider. And um, what did you find were the biggest challenges into finding just that right horse for, um, for a para-rider and for international competition? Well, probably one of the biggest challenges was Jonathan was about foot four inches tall and mm -hmm. had to have a 17 two plus horse uh, which was uh, uh, believe it or not one of the the biggest difficulties finding a horse um, large enough and then of For course sure. yeah and then of course as you know the quality of the horses has skyrocketed since uh, Athens in 2004, which was the first time riders could bring their own horses. Mm -hmm. And then in 2012, where you're competing against countries who are able to use their Olympic horses uh, and be able to ride them in the Paralympics. With the quality gates, an uh, FEI level um, of um, you know scoring nines and tens in their gates, um, and then at the right size, and then that would would be willing to learn new cues, uh, not the traditional uh, cues given by the legs and, and seat um, that able-bodied riders are able to give, but may it be mm -hmm. some 
whips, and then to filter out unwanted uh, cues <laughs> because of the different yep. disabilities. Um, you know, that, that takes a, a special horse to have all those rolled into one horse. Um, you know, Richter scale was actually the first horse in Jonathan's, since the age of 18 months, that he, that he was, uh, had the opportunity to train on for more than a year. Every other horse wow. until then, uh, a year was the maximum for one reason or another that Jonathan had been able to train and compete with. And, um, really? yeah, thanks to, you know, Kai Hond, um, yeah. for found Richter and owned Richter and sponsored Jonathan in his horses. Uh, he had the opportunity to train and compete with Richter for, you know, almost four years. So that that was incredible and, uh, you know, really worked out. He also provided him with many other quality horses that he was able to ride and train and compete on, always having a, you know, a great second um, backup horse. All those that are competing, it's, it's so nice to have a horse. You can, you can have a second second option on in case something happens um but it was Richter was always fun and it was fabulous having him as um our friendly horse in the competition at London too he had such a big fan club there from all the countries <laughs> I think he won the hearts of the of, of London with uh, being the companion horse and then competing and you know the only thing that bothered him was that uh Rachel his his groom at the time was not giving him adequate supply of sugar cubes while he was standing out. Gina, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about the quality of horses that the paradressage riders, they need. And it's the same quality as the Olympic riders. Need. I'd love for you to kind of emphasize that and talk about why it's unique for paradressage and what it was like for you guys finding a horse. Well, um, you know, like I said, you know, since since Athens in 2004, um, when when para riders were able to bring their own horses, that was um, great in some ways, but made, uh, a huge change from how it was before, where you would uh, make the team and then uh, draw from a pool of horses provided by the host host country. And since then, uh, now the countries, especially uh, over in Europe, um, where paradressage really almost, I think, began, um, the quality has uh, just increased dramatically. And with the quality of a horse also um, seems to follow the price of the horse. <laughs> so that <laughs> is a challenge, I think, for um, every paradressage rider, if, if, and if not every, uh, the vast majority. And um, so, you know, the, finding um, the resources, either through sponsorship or through um, many individual donors or, you know, any means possible um, to, to find that quality horse and be able to afford it, um, either on lease or uh, buying um, is is one of the challenges because again you're looking for an FEI quality horse 
that has 9 and 10 at the walk, 9 and 10 at the trot, and the canter when you get up into grade uh, 3 and 4. And the grade 3 and 4 riders uh, with their uh, canter work and lateral work, um, you're looking at you've got to have a really top quality uh, parallel as paradressage means parallel to the able body Olympic horses and the movements that they are required to perform. And we noticed that in England, and we know England won the gold this year for paradressage, but the quality of their horses were spectacular. And even their grade 1A, which is our lowest level of paradressage, or least dis- or most disabled, I apologize, uh, it was spectacular to see those horses come out there. And I heard that some of their horses are the same horses they've used in the Olympics <laughs> or backup horses. So uh, could you tell me a little bit more about how England has grown and what they're doing, I guess, that you know of? <laughs> well, um, I know that one thing that England has um, is that they had a very established and large junior and young rider program, they begin working with riders and providing opportunities for training as young as the age of six. So they Mm -hmm. go from the age of six to the age of 25, and they provide regional uh, training days for those riders, and they provide national training um, for those riders, and then they have a large, very competitive Young Riders National Championship uh, over in uh, England that corresponds with their para-dressage festival of championships competition. And um, they not only have um, it well-established set up for training the riders, but they also have programs set up to train the horses, to scout out Mm -hmm. horses that uh, look like they have potential and to train them up and to bring them up through the programs. So they have a wonderful, um, wonderful program. And then, of course, what they also have is the National Lottery that provides funding, a great deal of funding for their para-dressage athletes, mm-hmm. um, which is great. And the U.S., I will, I, I would say, never get that, but we need to try to look towards sponsorships and uh, companies or, you know, different opportunities here in the U.S. that could at least, in as, as far as possible, mirror, mirror the programs uh, in England mm-hmm. if we want to become and maintain a, a, a competitive dress, uh, paradressage um, team. Well, Tina, we really appreciate talking with you today, and it was a uh, it was wonderful seeing you in Florida at the CPEDI, and hope to see you again very soon in the near future. And um, we look forward to seeing more of those young riders out there in the para ring. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and I am yeah. excited to see if we can't establish and grow a great uh, young riders program here in the United States. Well, that was a terrific interview, guys. And now we're going to have the final part in our Thin Line Global Leg Protection Series, talking all about boots and what to do with them and how to take care of them, which ones to use when. And we want to thank Jennifer from the Horse Tip Daily Show here on the Horse Radio Network and Elaine of Thin Line Global for putting this series together. 
everybody. This is Coach Jen, host of the Horse Tip Daily Show here on the Horse Radio Network. Thanks for joining us for the conclusion of our four-part series on leg protection for your horse. In the first three installments of the series, with the expert help of Elaine Lockhead, we've covered who needs leg protection, why they need it, and the function of the many types of boots available to today's equestrians. This educational series has been produced in cooperation with ThinLine Global, and they've created a special offer just for our listeners. When you go to thinlineglobal.com and purchase any ThinLine product, be it protective boots, pads, or other accessories, type the word RADIO in the promo code at checkout and receive 12% off your online purchase. And now I'd like to welcome back Elaine Lockhead. Thank you. It's lovely to be back. In this final installment of our four-part series on uh, leg protection, we're going to be covering fitting boots, um, how to take care of your boots, and the durability factor with your boots. And Elaine Lockhead from Thin Line Global is here to help me out because she seems to know everything boot, and thank goodness she does. So let's cover fit first because unless you get a pair of boots or a set of boots that fit properly, nothing else really much matters. So what should I be looking for in a good fit? The most important thing to look for is to make sure that that boot is not shifting around. If it's, if it's moving and you, it's probably too large. And if the horse, if the horse boot is moving on the horse's leg, it's going to, cause you a lot of problems, the horse is not going to be comfortable, and it can be dangerous if the boot actually shifts down on to the hoof area. Oh, so, golly. Yeah, that so would be, that would be very ugly. Too large. Yeah. We also don't want to go too small. One of the most important things whenever you're applying a, any kind of equine leg protection is you always pull from, if you've got a piece of elastic that closes with a Velcro, you pull the elastic around, close it down on the Velcro, and then generally there's a second Velcro that goes on top of that to secure it. The most important thing to remember is you always pull from the front where the cannon bone is to the back of the leg. You never pull against the tendon. and That's when you get tendon damage. Oh. You always pull from the front to the back of the leg and then secure your Velcro. So if your boot is too small and you're pulling really hard and you could just get the fastening thing and you've got a death grip on your horse's leg, he's not going to be very happy about that. No. So we want to just try that and make sure that the boot has a reasonable fit. It's not rocket science. You you can have something like a galloping boot or a brushing boot that goes around the whole leg, and it can close on top of itself a little bit, or it can have a little bit of a gap. So it's really a pretty wide range that is a tolerable range to use. So you don't have to be really OCD about your boot size most of the time. You kind of want to get in the right neighborhood, and you'll be all right. If you just look for those things, make sure the boot's not shifting, and make sure that you're not having to pull it extremely tight to get it on. Now, most, most most companies have sizing charts on their websites. Oh, yeah. And so read the label, right? <laughs> you can read the label and you can measure your horse. Some, I, I, some companies, it's very difficult because they will have so many different boot sizes. You know, it's not like helmets. Riding helmets, for instance, you have to have a different helmet size for every eighth of an inch because your helmet has to fit perfectly. 
boots are not that way. And if you have to look at a grid with 47 sizes, you probably should stay away from that boot because that means the way it's manufactured is it has to fit exactly. There are many good boots out there that if you kind of get in the neighborhood, it fits well, it'll mold to the horse's leg, it will work perfectly. So that's kind of one thing you might want to look out for. You really don't want to feel like when you go shopping for boots that you just are inundated with choices. Your selective dog has a couple, oh, you know, small, medium, or large. There you go. Um, when you're fitting a boot on a horse, most boots nowadays, you, the buckles seem to be, a strap with a buckle seems to be out of vogue right now. Most boots seem to close with a Velcro. How do you deal with that little flap of Velcro that the pokey part is longer than the soft, squishy part. Would you recommend trimming them off, or do people tape them down? I wouldn't. Well, it, no, I wouldn't cut them off because then the Velcro tends to fray. Ah. Uh-huh. Um, if you're, if when you close your boot, you have, you know, and more than about a quarter of an inch, up to a half an inch left over, mm-hmm. and what you've done is you have selected a boot that has an elastic that was too inexpensive. And the elastic pulls too much. And what happens when you pull, when you have inexpensive elastic, it is no longer elastic because it pulls out to 100% of the pull rate and then it does nothing. You want a boot that flexes. Think about how much the horse's leg is moving. You need your boot to be able to kind of open and close a little bit as the horse is going. So if you find that you have a lot of Velcro left at the end, you've probably purchased a boot that was, I don't want to say too inexpensive, but you need to make sure that the elastic on the boot is a good, sturdy, durable elastic and not something that's thin and is just going to pull out straight and be useless. Yeah, we've all seen that elastic that after a few uses... Um, when the elastic is no longer under tension, it gets that kind of wobbly, it looks like an overcooked egg noodle. That's not the elastic you want. No. So if my horse is getting chafe marks on his legs where his boots go, can that be caused by a too tight boot or a too loose boot or both? It could actually be caused by both. It's most likely to be caused by a um, too loose boot and then you have to take a look at the material inside. Um, there are a lot of materials that chafe the horse's leg. Leather is actually one. We use leather so much in equine products just because that was what was available up until the last 50 years or so. So you find a lot of leather in horse products, and then people oil that leather, and then the leather is slippery, and then it irritates the oil, irritates the horse's leg and you get this whole cycle of problems going on and other products like uh, some horses are allergic to or have a reaction to neoprene and some horses have a reaction to latex and some horses have a reaction to a lot of the products that go inside of a boot Um, the easiest product to use is well no almost no horse has a reaction to sheepskin but that's very difficult for a person to manage in a boot because they tend to get very dirty, but at least that would never chafe and rub. And then, of course, the thin line never chafes and rubs. 
Very interesting. So look, check into that fit, people. So with um, durability, we touched on that a little bit with the gappy, overcooked egg noodle elastic. What should folks look for in their boots that's going to tell them it's time to replace the boot or have the boot repaired? One of the things I like to do with the boot is find if you don't have a strike plate on your boot or if there's part of the boot that doesn't have a strike plate on it, if you'll just take your thumb and your finger and squeeze, if you can feel your own thumb and your own finger, then that means the product inside the boot has deteriorated to such a point that it's doing nothing for your horse. So when you touch a boot... If you press down on it, you should not be able to feel your own fingers on either side of the inside of that boot. Cool. I never would have thought of that. Do you recommend if you've got a pair of boots that, let's say, the Velcro bits have worn out? Because sometimes, especially if you have a lot of dirt where your boots live and they have to, they're getting washed a lot and there's a lot of abrasion, can you replace the Velcro safely? Have it taken off by, the, by your local tack repair store and, and new Velcro put on? Well, I suppose you could, but as an American, I can't seem to find anybody who can repair something as cheaply as I can replace it. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, right from the right from the manufacturer's mouth, right there you That's go. Right. That's right, exactly. And then, too, you never know. Is somebody going to do an appropriate job? Are they going to sew and create a rub point? Are they going to mm-hmm. sew, not put in stitching that's the way... You know, when we make a boot, we spend years researching how to make that boot and how to make it so that it will not fail. And, you know, a piece of elastic will not break, something will not give. But one of the important things that the customer has to do to make sure a boot or a bell boot doesn't fail is they have to keep their Velcro clean. You know, if you have a little wire brush or even just a hard dandy brush at your barn when you take your boots off, Make sure that you brush out the dirt from the Velcro, because if you don't, Velcro doesn't close dirt encased in it. So Velcro and dirt do not get along. No, they don't. But they Which like bring... each other. They like each other. <laughs> there we go. Which, of course, brings us to our next, our, our next and final wrap-up here for uh, a horse's leg care products here. When you take care of your boots, sort of give me Boot Care 101, because there are things that people do to clean their boots which just don't sound like a good idea. Well, I would first say only put leather products on leather. Uh, We see a lot of people who try to put oils on other materials. Not a good idea at all. No, it will destroy that product. So only put leather leather cleaning products on leather. Um, Most other products can be used, can be washed with simple soap and water, just kind of a simple detergent. And then pretty much every manufacturer has a special cleaning agent that you can buy. And sometimes that, what that does, if you use that cleaning agent, is it will extend your warranty on your product. So that's often a good idea to invest a little bit in that. But generally, just a little soap and water. Um, some items you can bleach, so you need to check with the manufacturer to make sure that you can add bleach to the wash cycle if you're washing them. And if you're wearing boots, what I do is, you know how you can buy those little laundry bags, um, washing machine? Yeah. And 
all products have Velcro, things tend to want to get stuck on each other and things get pulled in the washing machine. So you want to put some put your products maybe in one of those net bags and wash them like that and generally they're good. And oh, I forgot one other thing when you're taking off a boot that has Velcro, make sure that you hold down the bottom Velcro, take off the tab because if you pull the tab and don't support the underlying Velcro, then what you're doing is decreasing the longevity of your boot because you're going to be pulling against that elastic and pulling against the mainframe of what supports the boot. So always use two hands when you're taking off a boot and pull up your your securing Velcro tab and then pull your Velcro off. Oh, oh, very good points. I love that whole mesh bag idea. Yeah, and you can get them very inexpensively at the uh, the, the myriad of dollar stores that are around. Absolutely, and they're, they'll save you a lot of money just by spending a few pennies on something like yes. that. Yes, and one of the things that I've learned the hard way is I close the Velcro when I put them in the wash so that the boots don't turn themselves into a, a little rat's nest of Velcro attached in all the wrong directions. That's right. <laughs> well, once again, a very informative chat, Elaine. Tell folks where they can find Thin Line on the web and learn more about uh, good quality boots and all the technology that goes into them. You can find us at thinlineglobal.com. Thinlineglobal.com. Does Thin Line have a Facebook page? We do. So you can search on Facebook for Thin Line, all one word? Thin Line, all one word. And it's actually, it's a really fun page and if you are a facebook fan you often get coupons that nobody else gets to see (gasps) top secret and you heard it here on the horse radio network thin line global coupons on the facebook page check it out thanks again elaine and uh, we'll see you around great thank you happy riding and that's a wrap Thanks for listening, everyone, and if you have not yet listened to Parts 1, 2, and 3 of this leg protection series, you can find them at horsetipdaily.com. Just type leg protection in the search bar in the top right-hand corner of the page, and you can also find them at thinlineglobal.com. Coming up next is Derek Perkins, and uh, what's really unique, we're kind of segueing from Tina Wentz, Derek is now riding Jonathan Wentz's mount NTEC Richter scale, and uh, he'll be riding him in the next couple of shows. And Derek's going to be talk- talking about riding jo- riding Jonathan's horse, riding with Kai Hunt, and he's also going to be talking about how being a veteran is it's so important for veterans to get out there and get involved with sports like para dressage. Hey, Derek, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. Good, good. So I've heard that you've been riding Jonathan Wentz's old old mount NTEC Richter scale. Yeah, uh, so tell sure. me a little bit about what you what your plans are right now and what you're doing. Well, um, I was kind of introduced to Kai Hunt, and I went out, called him up, and told him to come on out. And uh, and uh, it was my first time, like really out in the real world, away from a therapeutic riding sense. And so he comes walking out with Victor, this huge horse, and he's like, hey, we're going to get you up on the horse. I'm like, okay, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) It was a bit bit intimidating. The first day, it really took me a while, really, just to get really upright and seated. But but, uh, Guy, uh, you know, he's kind of straightforward, straight no chasers, and 
cowboy up and let's ride. You want to go to the Olympics? You got to ride. Come on, cowboy up. Like, yeah, yeah he is a he's a very German trainer, but he's very good. Right. You are in good hands with him. Yeah, he is. He is he's uh he's almost as good as he says he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um so tell us a little bit about your uh your disability and uh what what qualifies you for paradressage. Well, when uh, during my Air Force days, I was in the uh, Air Force, and I, I was injured in a car accident, actually going from uh, one base to another, Bursa Air Force Base in Austin, to Nellis Air Force Base. And uh, I was a passenger, and the, the driver fell asleep. And so I was, uh, the seatbelt kind of saved my life, but that was kind of before airbags. And so from the whiplash, it, it fractured my neck. So I have a C3 and 4 incomplete injury. I think they now they have me at like C six Asia D. I kinda don't know what that really means, but anyway, I don't have an incomplete injury, so I have more movement in my extremities than than if I had a complete injury, put it that way. Wow. Wow. So I can sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say so I can stand, like I hold on to something I can stand and Using a walk, I can take a few steps, but it's not really functional. And mm-hmm. so uh, it was kind of nice when I got introduced to the therapy. Well, this started as a therapeutic ride. It's a horseback riding. It was kind of nice getting out of a wheelchair, you know, in a sitting position, out of a sitting position into a standing position, and uh, mm-hmm. just being able to get out and about and basically go for a walk. So it's been awesome. You know, I've noticed uh, most of our riders, a lot of them that are in wheelchairs, they say that once they're on the horse, they start to feel their body, they start to they start to work those muscles that they don't usually get to work, and they, they feel free when, the, when they're on a horse. So is that how it exactly. feels for you? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, and um, just getting up and out, out in, in uh, these pretty settings and, you know, on trails and just getting out and about and, and actually communicating with a horse, which is kind of awesome. And then when um, I got introduced to it through the uh, the VA Medical Center, um, mm-hmm. through therapeutic riding, which is a SIRE, program called SIRE, Houston's Therapeutic Riding Center in Houston. They have three locations. And and so I, somebody told me about it, and I went out and talked to them and started riding. And the first day, of course, was uh, I was kind of questioning my sanity. Because I uh, got up there and I uh, really, I was like looking for the seatbelt. I'm like, there's no seatbelt, buddy. Walk on. It's like, hey, it's hey. Kind of like I was sitting on top of a mountain with nothing to hold on to. But but uh, they pushed me and I just kept going and they don't ever since. <laughs> it's Ellie it's here. Um, I know as a as a disabled athlete, I'm a, I'm a hugely competitive person myself, and I love the uh-huh. fact that I get to compete with my horse. How do you feel mm-hmm. about transitioning from the therapeutic aspect of the riding to getting some competition time in the uh-huh. arena? Oh, yeah, because uh, I'm pretty competitive myself. I've trained in martial arts most of my life. And so oh, there's, wow. there's, a, there's a lot of parallels, and it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a way to continue that training. You know, when I'm up on the horse, because it's the same, you know, the precision, the uh, the movement, and and uh, and uh, it's just it's just really been a continuation. And 
And um, being competitive myself, yeah, it's nice to get out there because I, I participated in wheelchair sports since my injury. For years, mm-hmm. I've been going to the, the National Veterans Wheelchair Games every summer. And so I've competed okay. with everything from archery to bowling to rugby to, you know, wheelchair soccer and all these mm-hmm. wheelchair sports. But being able to get out of the wheelchair and get onto a horse is a whole other thing. And so uh, sure. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Um, can you can you talk to us a little bit about the Wounded Warrior Project and explain your involvement with that organization? Well, actually, I'm not really uh, that much involved with Wounded Warriors. I'm a uh-huh. I'm a I'm a member, and also now I'm a, I'm a board member of the Paralyzed Veterans of America. Okay. The Texas, the Texas chapter. I'm a board member of the Texas chapter. And, uh, it's a national organization based in Washington under the Department of Defense, Paralyzed Veterans of America, because we, uh, mm-hmm. you know, paral- obviously paralyzed veterans, people who've had spinal cord injury or spinal cord disease while in, you know, mm-hmm. the military, as a result of the military service, you know, we have some of the same issues and, and, uh, even to, uh, legally we, we advocate for, for, uh, not only veterans' rights, but also the rights of the, disabled uh, population at large. And so uh, that's, that's kind of what we do. And a bit, like I said, a big part of it is sports and recreation, getting our members out, out of their hospital beds, out of their chairs, and get and get out and uh, out and about and, and get active. And, and everybody benefits, you know, health-wise. And, you know, we keep them out of the hospital, and, you know, and just mm-hmm. keep getting back into life and, and uh, moving forward. But like I said, with the Wounded Warriors, there are many veterans organizations, and Wounded Warriors, um, we're kind of associated, and mm-hmm. uh, we advocate. As a matter of fact, we advocate for a lot of the same things as far as uh, veterans' health care and things like that. And and um, but um, but they're they're uh, it's it's a recently it's a recent organization really came out of the Gulf War, and uh, they deal more with those are coming out of uh, these war, um, um, you know, um, coming out of, the, you know, Iraq and Iran and, and uh, the Middle East and, and they're injured and they come out and and um, a lot of them get involved with the wounded warriors. But uh, with the paralyzed veterans, obviously we're specific to uh, spinal cord mm-hmm. injury and uh, spinal cord disease like, such as uh, MS. And will you be going to our show in California, hopefully, our uh, three-star event out there? Uh, that's the plan, because from what I understand, that's the only uh, CDI left this year in the States, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of my understanding. So in uh, April, in, uh, I mean, not April, mm-hmm. June, excuse me. And uh, mm-hmm. so, that, yeah, that, that's the plan. So but right now I'm kind of staying, staying in my lane, staying right here in the uh, and uh, get out there and uh, and get active. And I'm looking forward to, like I said, and I'm excited and I'm, and uh, ready to go, ready to cowboy up as a cowboy. <laughs> I guess from I know United States Equestrian Federation is starting to get um, a little more involved and in, with the veterans, and we're excited because yeah. I know mm-hmm. it's very important for veterans to be involved in sports like paradressage and. I guess what words of wisdom do you have out there for for any disabled veterans that want to get involved? Well, it uh, I've been I've been really preaching it out there and telling them how how it um how beneficial it can be and and 
to get out there. I mean, and uh, all the different programs they can get involved with to kind of get them going. And um, there was a few I had, you know, kind of interested, but you know, uh, uh, you know, a lot of them are very busy doing a lot of different things and married and and uh, working, and so so it's kind of hard sometimes. And then there are others like I have a, a good friend that was, you know, he's written all his life, but um, he has these violent. You know, um, really violent um, muscle spasms at times. That it's really not conducive to riding a horse. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there, you know, I'm just you know encouraging other people to get out there and, and try it. And we've got a few. And um, and uh, I ride with uh, one veteran. He's a he's an Iraq veteran. He's a and um, and he has a traumatic brain injury. And he's kind of uh, working his way through and. Uh, and uh, we'll see where it goes. I've been trying to encourage him, and and uh, and uh, but he's he's in, he's busy with a lot of things also. So you know, but uh, but I would I would tell him and say it, it's it's a really um, beneficial way to kind of uh, uh, get some return in uh, muscles you didn't you know you don't even know you still have and things like that. And so I keep encouraging, him and, and uh, hopefully the word gets out even more and. And I'll do my part. Um, well, I know Garrett's planning on uh, hopefully going to that California show in June from the 14th to the 16th. I know it's in Rancho Marietta, California. I'm pretty sure it's, it's called. Are you planning on going there, Ellie? Um, we'll see what the future holds. Um, I think at least I'll go as a spectator. Um, it's it's tough to get the horses across the country. I think I'll at least go as a spectator, but um, I'm excited to see this new show facility and um, really excited to see new shows stepping up and including CPEDIs in their competition. Yeah, me too. And, uh, and you know, on a personal note, I'm going to miss you being here down here in Florida when you head back up north uh, for the summer because I'm going to be going to Backstreet's and ordering our yummy buffalo chicken sandwiches. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I'll <laughs> make an excuse to come down and visit again soon. Uh, I know the winter, next, next winter season won't come fast enough, so, um, but it's been great being down here with you and, um, I'm so excited for you since you just moved down here with your new home, and I hope settling in all goes well. You can be less excited for her in July when it's 112 degrees where she lives. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably be traveling up north. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have our time coming, don't we, Lindsay, when, when uh, yeah. our winter is in the summer. Uh, yes, yes. Those poor horses, though, I, I've ridden here all summer long for trainers, and it's well, it's terrible for them. I feel just awful. Yeah, you know, we <laughs> don't get it. North. <laughs> we don't get as hot. My co-host of the morning show actually lives in Arizona where it gets to be, it really does get to be about 115 during the day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it, down here, it never gets, you know, it approaches 95 to 100, but it's the 100% mm-hmm. humidity that gets you down here. It's just. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah, I actually awful. know. I live. I lived in Phoenix all last year, and I, I was looking around to see if I wanted to bring horses, and I said, never mind, those summers are terrible. So I lived there for a year and then came back for my horses back in, up in Ohio. Oh, and you lived through some of the haboobs out there, too. They had some real doozies this year, this last year. Yeah, nobody warned me that there were things like that out there, and all of a sudden, we were. I was in Scottsdale at the dressage show at one of their um, national, I think it was a regional championship, and I'm watching one of Ellie's trainers, actually, her old trainer, Sabine Riesenbeck, 
And all of a sudden, this haboob started coming at us, and I couldn't even get on the freeway to get home. It was so terrible. <laughs> and for those that don't know, we're not being dirty here. Uh, it's a dust storm, a great big dust storm. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, not not enjoyable to live through those. <laughs> well, you guys did terrific. Thank you so much for oh, for you. doing this again today. No problem. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right, um, you can find our show notes and links of today's guests on the website at dressageradio.com. Like us on Facebook. Just search for Dressage Radio Show. Follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. You can learn more about the United States Paraquestrian Association at USPEA.org and on Facebook. Don't forget to check us check out all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. Um, till next month.